Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. Welcome to the Midweek's Politics Guy show. And this week, Mike is on vacation, so it will be myself, Trey Orndorf, and Jay Carson. And this week, we're going to be talking about your mail. You've had a lot of questions coming into this this week, and we want to try to get to all of them here for Wednesday. And so we're, we're looking forward to kind of digging into the mailbox and seeing what you have to say. It's always kind of fun taking that perspective. Um, before we get into listening listener mail, though, Jay, there was a really interesting article that we didn't have a chance to get to during the weekend show uh, that we wanted to kind of talk about. And that was, once again, revisiting the question of why did we have the kinds of electoral outcomes that we had? Uh, Listeners might know that I am a presidential guy, so I'm always looking at presidential elections and communication. But what came out actually was that Facebook had offered to both the Hillary Clinton campaign and to the Donald Trump campaign Uh, the opportunity to have embedded data analysts to help them use the data coming out of Facebook for their campaign. And what's really interesting is that the Clinton campaign was offered those embeds, turned them down. The Trump campaign, the digital director, actually accepted them and actually went on 60 Minutes last week and said, look, Every time we had any buttons, clicks, or eyeballs on things, we were able to know what was going on because we had Trump campaign advisors with the data app operation analyst from Facebook parsing that five days a week. And he makes the claim that he thinks that that data game is part of what strengthened their position in micro-targeting versus Hillary Clinton. And I just found that really interesting. So, you know, I know a couple weeks ago we talked about the impact of uh, Facebook on elections in a different kind of context. But here it is, you know, Facebook itself offering some different tools to both campaigns. One accepts it, one doesn't. And, you know, how much might that have affected or not affected the campaign? Well, I'm curious also for the reasons behind that, if if the, the Clinton campaign gave a reason of why they rejected it. The Clinton campaign um, has actually declined, uh, to cl- declined to comment on the uh, yeah. the story at this point. <laughs> My, If I were to speculate as to a reason, uh, it was uh, hubris. It was the, look, we're, we're much smarter than you anyway. Yeah, it could and, be. And I mean, the, the, the other thing that's always been interesting is the DNC has always seemed to be I mean, Obama seemed to be the exception to the DNC rule when it came to having data collection. As a matter of fact, I remember in 2008, a lot of the interesting stories between the Clinton team and the Obama team. So the Obama team was actually collecting a database of uh, cell phone numbers for texting purposes and email addresses. Mm -hmm. And as they were going through debates, uh, Hillary Clinton actually turns to one of her aides and says, hey, are, are we doing anything like that? And the answer was no. They didn't have anybody's cell phone number. So they, they had no texting ability. It was the first campaign where you had saw some widespread text usage it was actually in the in the primary between Hillary and, and Barack Obama. So I, I mean, it could also just be something idiosyncratic to Clinton that she just doesn't trust digital data. Yeah, she's not she's not big on uh, keeping digital data. Um, <laughs> but- no, I, I, no, I really, I, from what, from everything I've, I've read, just the, the tenor of the, the Clinton campaign, and so much, you know, the, their, their mantra was the, you know, uh, our data beats your anecdotes. Um, well, no, it, it didn't, and I think that's sort of the, there was a sense I think maybe her, her um, tech folks were just uh, overconfident 
uh, and thought, well, we don't, we don't need this, this help. We, we got this. Um, and, uh, you know, kudos to, uh, to the Trump team for, for saying, Hey, this could be helpful. Uh, let's, let's take a, take a look at it. You know, what's the other thing that's fascinating about this that goes unsaid in the story or in the 60 minutes is it seems like why is Facebook offering consultants? Yeah. Yeah. Why (laughs) is Facebook offering consultants and what are they getting out of it? I mean, okay, so I'm, I'm giving you, you know, a lot of my analysts work time. There's got to be something they're getting out of it. I mean, is this helping them with their own data collection? And if so, what well, is that? My, help? my guess is what they're what they're getting out of it would probably be ad revenue from the the two campaigns. Um, you know, we say. I mean, it's almost like if you if you're working with um, anyone else who's who's placing ads for you, uh, you uh, they say, hey, here's what's here's what's working. You know, you give them the ad. They say, here's how this is performing. Here's what's working. Here's what we think a good ad would be based on the other stuff we're seeing. And it's sort of a, a symbiotic relationship. Um, so, I, I mean, my sense is that's what they they would get out of it, um, which is, it's one of those, I, I don't know, is that is that sort of sinister or is it just, just sort of regular business? I My sense is I, I don't see anything sinister uh, on the face of it, but, but you know, it could, could something like that be exploited? Yeah. Yeah. It's just a fascinating kind of question to, I think it's something we'll have to continue to think about and keep our eyes on as we move forward. Um, why don't we move over to some listener mail now that I've got my, my bugaboo out. Uh, and the first one, Jay, is from a listener in Texas, uh, Cody. And Cody, he has been a listener of ours for a year. So thank you very much, Cody. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to the show uh, this week. Thank and you, we Cody. hope. Yeah. Uh, And so here's his question, Jay. He says that uh, his dad has come to the conclusion that we are on the edge of World War III or a civil war, and he wants to know what our thoughts are about that. So are are we on the brink of destruction? Well, um, that's that's pretty heavy, Cody. Uh, My my first of all, I'd say, well, I I hope not. (laughs) I hope your dad's wrong. Um, I, I don't, I, listen, I think, um, and again, you know, I, the way, what I tried to bring to the, this show, and I know Mike does too, and Trey also is, is sort of historical perspective, um, to say, uh, every generation sometimes thinks, uh, wow, this is the end. This is, this is really bad. This has never happened before. Um, but a lot of times things like this have happened before, or they've been even worse before. Um, my sense is we're not in a, a great place uh, internationally with uh, rogue states, particularly North Korea, um, uh, you know, sort of rattling the, the nuclear sabers. Um, uh, we are we're not in a great place uh, domestically with a lot of dissension that we have here. Uh, I would point out just as a historical matter in, in both cases, um, North Korea threat uh, is is much. You know, I, I grew up, and, and Trey, you maybe got the tail end of it, uh, the Cold War, where, where we lived with the reality that uh, some mistake, some miscalculation uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union could literally wipe out the entire planet. Um, you know, there were enough enough weapons to destroy uh, every human being, uh, and the extent that there would be uh, fallout and 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 uh, other um, nuclear winter and all these these other things would would flow from it. Um, 
you know, grew up with sort of a really, you know, real fear uh, that the, you know, the end of civilization might be just around the corner. Uh, I don't think we're in that kind of situation now. No. Um, that's not to say that uh, what the North Koreans uh, are threatening is uh, is good and couldn't have, let's say, you know, catastrophic consequences. Yes. Uh, but I, I don't think we're 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 looking at a a global. Uh, global war, global nuclear war disaster, uh, sort of as, as we were so close to. I mean, there, there's some really, um, Cody, if you want to get really scared, <laughs> there's a, a book uh, it was called The uh, the Dead Hand, uh, came out a couple years ago. Um, and it's about sort of the, the Soviet nuclear capacities and biological capacities and what they had, and to some extent, what's still out there. Um, but it really puts in, in, um, in relief uh, some of the, the times when we were really close. There was a time in 1983 uh, where, you know, the Soviets had a, an unusual blip on their radar screen and they were really close to pushing the button. Um, and, and but for a couple really level-headed folks um, uh, over there, uh, we could have been in, in about, and then also there's, it's fascinating that, that talks about, and I'm sorry, I'm digressing a little bit, but I, it, it's just some fascinating stuff. Um, they did. They would do uh, tests, uh, like like uh, uh, sort of a, a run through. Um, uh, well, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, sort of a, a a practice, you know, scenario with with the president uh, about what would happen in a nuclear strike, and with his national security folks, uh, they they would have someone play the role of President Reagan uh, and just have him watch because. That information was so top secret, was so classified that they didn't want anyone to know what Reagan, him, how Reagan himself would actually react. Mm. Um, uh, but it said after they did these these sort of again game playing, role playing kind of things, Reagan was so shaken uh, by all this that that's that's one of the things that launched him into uh, wanting to to move forward with um, meeting with Gorbachev and, and Reykjavik. Uh, as well as uh, pursuing uh, Star Wars, but but setting aside the the, the international uh, stuff, um, uh, domestically, no, we're, we have a, a lot of dissension. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on, but I, I'd say it's it's not the situation uh, anywhere close to what we had um, in uh, 1860. Um, yeah, and and I. Trey, you can weigh in on a couple of these for some other reasons, but uh, that was a regional conflict. Uh, this is not regional, you know, to the extent we have that, this is more like the 1960s. And even so I would say not as, um, violent as the 1960s were at least not yet. Yeah. Well, and, and, and Cody, I think one of the things to remember, and I'm, it's, it's difficult to do, but when you're watching the news, I mean, one of the reasons we started this show was to try to give you a better narrative of what's happening in the world than what happens from your typical media narrative, right? Because what happens in your typical media narrative is this week, for example, I believe it was NBC, or last week, I should say, uh, it was NBC that had released the thing. Uh, there was a talk about how, well, if there was a, um, if you took out the power in the United States with a low-lying um, nuclear bomb, you would kill 90%. EMP, yeah. Yeah. And the thing to remember is, is that we at hum humans, we're bad at making predictions. We're even bad at making predictions for ourselves. And the reason isn't that you can't 
get better at it. The reason is, is that we don't use the right kinds of tools to make good predictions. We're not good at something called base rates. In other words, if nothing else were to change, what's the likelihood of something to happen, right? So if you want to know, okay, what's the likelihood of a civil war to happen? Before you start looking at the specifics of regionalism or anything like that, you ask yourself, well, how often do civil wars just happen in general if nothing else was going on? And the answer is they're really, really rare, right? So you, you, when you're going to make a prediction, you go from, okay, maybe a civil war has a 1% chance of occurring in a country. Well, you're going to move your prediction from there. That's your base rate. Rather than like maybe if you're flipping a coin, your base rate's 50-50, right? So if you're starting to monkey with that coin, you'd say, oh, well, the, it's going to move from 50-50. You're not going to start back at zero. And so it can be really hard, though, when you see all these stories that are being sensationalized or they're focusing on things to get you to click or to have an eyeball to think about base rates. And, you know, if anybody doesn't believe me that they're not bad at predictions, just have a conversation with nighttime you versus morning you. I don't know if you've ever done this, Jay, right? But, you know, nighttime you wants to stay up. There's one more show to watch on Netflix. And you're like, yes. And it's amazing. Morning you hates nighttime you because then they're tired, right? But that generally doesn't change what nighttime you does. <laughs> so just keep that in mind. Base rates, you know, so civil wars, World War II, there's only been, you know, really three major uh, world wars in history. And so that base rate is really low. Anything else you'd like to add, Jay? No, I, again, I would say just looking at the, the politics uh, of this, our, our constitution is, is structured such that it, uh, it, it's pretty durable. Uh, and there can be a lot of bending and uh, I'll tell you, I don't like some of the bending. Um, uh, but, but it doesn't necessarily break. And, um, I, I don't see that, uh, as a concern. Um, and lastly, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll say, listen, if, if there were to be a civil war, uh, my money's on Texas. I don't know. I think you're in Florida. I mean, well, I think no, we I, can I, stop I'm just you. saying if it is a, if it, if the, if the civil war is something of the ideologies of say a California, uh, versus a Texas, um, um, I would, I would give the Texans the upper hand, um, both in terms of armament and, uh, in terms of, uh, uh sort of stick to itiveness. <laughs> yeah, but again, yeah, I mean, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's uh, low, but I can understand why. No, you're I know, Cody. Yeah, Cody. Let me let's uh, uh, yeah, put put your mind at rest. Uh, um, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think either one of those are are a real possibility. That's not to say there's not strife ahead, but uh, we'll get through it like we we always have. So before we get to our next listener email from uh, Tom, uh, why don't we do our first ad? And this week. Our first ad is actually Casper. Casper, I don't know about you, Jay, but I, I am a runner. I put in about 20 or so miles a week. And, you know, I, I also cross train because I'm working on a triathlon. And so sleeping is a really big deal. You don't recover if you're on sad, saggy, ready for the curb mattresses. And you, what you got to do is you got to move something better. And what I'm going to be talking about is a Casper mattress. I sleep on one, and let me tell you, it's not only a definite upgrade over what I had before, it's the best mattress I've ever had. I've had the best recovery on it without question. Um, and I know that, I think you should, don't you have one too? 
I, I, I don't have, but I have several family members who do. Oh, and, okay. Uh, they are not runners, but uh, they still swear by it uh, and uh, have, have been really impressed and um, uh, give give it uh, high praise both for the the, the convenience, the technology, uh, and, and just the, the rest that they get on it. Well, and you know, the tech, I mean, they've got all sorts of engineers on the payroll and they've come up with a combination, a very supportive memory foam that gives you just the right amount of sync and bounce. And it's designed to be breathable. So if you're like me and live in Florida, where it's about 100 degrees in December, you still can sleep and you're going to appreciate that. And it's not just... And it's also delivered to you. You don't have to spend uh, time at the awkward uh, mattress store uh, trying to try to pick one out. Laying where somebody else is laid grossly enough um they've already got over twenty thousand reviews with an average of a 4.8 stars plus just as jay was just mentioning they've got free shipping to the u.s and canada and a 100 night risk-free deal if you don't love it they'll pick it up and refund you everything so it's designed developed and assembled in the united states and best of all right now politics guys listeners get fifty dollars toward any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash tpg and using promo code tpg that's casper.com slash tpg promo code tpg terms and conditions apply so our next email jay is from tom and uh this is tom and william uh williamton North Carolina. I love North Carolina. So uh, lucky you, Tom. And um, he says that he's been listening to your, the discussion we've had on the show of gun policy, and he's been frustrated. And he's frustrated because he doesn't like guns. He won't have one in his house. And he knows that having a gun in his house is going to create a risk of it being stolen or used against him. It could accidentally kill him or his family or be used by someone in my house to commit suicide. What he says is, quote, a gun I do not own cannot kill me. At the same time, I understand the Second Amendment exists and what the Heller decision says, although he thinks it's wrongly decided. So here's my question and comment. Um, We manage a lot of stuff in our society around the margins, doing what we can to make everything work a little better. What we do is reasonable. We license drivers to weed out people who shouldn't drive. The same with doctors and lawyers. We can just let Everybody drive, do surgery, or practice law, but we kind of know that's not a good idea. Sure, if someone wants to do those things and don't care about a license, they can give it a try, but we'd punish them. So what we do is reasonable. Why shouldn't we do the same thing with guns? That's uh, and that's from uh, Tom again in uh, North Carolina. So Tom, okay, uh, why don't we start by kind of taking this on? I, I, again, I want to start by saying that I am sympathetic and I understand. You know, you want to, I don't think anybody doesn't want there to be better outcomes, right? I mean, I think that's everybody's hope here. Uh, And I don't think anybody, uh, libertarian or conservative, is going to be arguing that we're taking these positions because we just want to have a a what, what does it matter anyway mentality. But I would like to point out to things like, and again, you know, I know this is soon, but like the Las Vegas uh, shooter he did, in fact, have a background check, and he did, in fact, have to get you know uh, credentials to get those weapons, and he still had those weapons. So now, you, but your argument might be, and I think what I'm kind of hearing, although you're not coming out and saying it, is well, we need to make that a whole lot more 
uh, stringent to prevent any kind of uh, gun crime from occurring, Second Amendment, Heller or otherwise. I mean, do you think I'm I'm summing up? I think so, but um, I think the well. important thing is, uh, again, Tom wants everyone to do something reasonable, and I think everyone wants someone wants something reasonable. Um, but I think a good place to look is is what are what What's do we reasonable? have right now? Yeah, no, I see what what um well, what we do uh, now yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and safeguards we have in place because i think a lot of times this is this is understated uh by the left that the idea of that anyone can just go and walk and get a gun uh and, and that's that's not the the case um uh for example if, if you're going to buy a a gun from a uh, federal uh federally licensed firearms uh, salesperson and that would be I mean that that can be you know the the guy down at Walmart uh, when you're buying a, a shotgun. Um, it, it could be um, uh, again someone in the gun store and, and so forth. Uh, a, a licensed dealer, you have to go through a background check. Mm -hmm. uh, and and again, this is this is a pretty broad prohibition. Now there's there are other things. There's this the so-called gun show gun show loophole uh, and, and certain private sales. Um, but set those aside for for a minute because. Uh, again, they, they're a very small portion of all guns sold. And secondly, there's, there's, hasn't been any, they haven't been tied to any sort of, uh, criminal, uh, uh, criminal attacks, you know, that, that we've seen. Um, so I, I, look, there's, there's a pretty robust, um, uh, uh, requirements for, for purchasing guns and, and different states have even another layer of protection, uh, and that can vary from state to state. Uh, for example, if you want to have a concealed per per uh, carry permit, not only do you go through the background check uh, and so forth, but you also have to go through a, a training regimen, um, uh, certification, and, and so forth. And again, the, the rigorousness of that can vary from state to state. But in most states, um, and in the minimum, but, like you said, it includes a class, and it also includes that you have to be able to actually shoot accurately a weapon to pass. Right. And you have to renew it every couple of years, uh, again, depending on, on your state. Um, so, so I, I mean, I, I just want to, you know, make sure everyone understands it. It's not as if there's, there are no regulation on, on guns. And, and in fact, and in, Las Vegas shooting. And, and in most, told every, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, into your point there, and in most states there, as a matter of fact, it might be everywhere. I, I, this one, I'm not sure. Maybe, you know, as the lawyer, Jay, but there's a waiting pe period for hand weapon, uh, handguns. Yeah, that that would I think differ from from state to state. Oh, okay. Um, there had originally been a a five uh, five day waiting period for all guns through federally licensed firearms, and the idea was you needed the five days uh, in order to conduct the background checks. But now the background checks, because everything's electronic, can be done so much quicker. It's it's it just about it's, in, it's crazy. instantaneous. Yeah. Um. So, uh, but but regardless, those those pieces are are out there already. Um, and I think what you see is we've had this in, in place, uh, in some cases, uh, going back to, uh, the 1930s, I mean, sort of back to, you know, the Al Capone days and that's, that's when, um, you know, alcohol, tobacco and firearms and the reason there's a reason those are, are looped or, or lumped together. It seems like an odd combination perhaps now, but it didn't in, I should say the 1920s. Uh, the prohibition area era uh, where, you know, that, so that's, that's when you started regulating guns and had these things, no machine guns, no automatics. Um, uh, there was another wave of, uh, uh, of regulation uh, in the late sixties following uh, the, the assassinations uh, that had occurred um, that, that 
we have this, you know, again, it, it's a pretty robust system. Um, and I guess that's sort of the, the conservative position is, uh, and is that, look, it, we have all these things out there already and, and yet still, um, we have shootings. So that's either telling us that, you know, the, this, what we have is inadequate. And if someone can come up with something that's, that's more adequate, uh, in order to screen people, that would be great. Um, or it's just a matter of the, the problem isn't the guns, it's the people who are, who are getting them. And, and we need to take another way to, to look at dealing with the people. And I think that that probably gets down to the, to the core of Tom's question. Cause I think what many people on the left are legitimately attempting to say is, look, you know, the problem that you've outlined, Jay, is that these kinds of mechanisms, none of them can work. That's why we need to basically restrict them into almost no one being able to, to own, purchase a weapon. To which I would argue, as a matter of fact, the United Kingdom started talking about banning different kinds of acid. <laughs> um, you know, we've had stabbing attacks. And I, mm-hmm. the, the problem is, is that we can have and, incidentally more people are more people are killed uh, by by knives in America than they are killed by, by, by guns. guns every year. And as a matter of fact, when you when you actually and, and that's not out, that's not to say that you know yeah you don't fix the one because the other is a problem. But yes, but the but the thing and, and Tom does note this in his email when you take a look at homicide or you take a look at deaths by weapon, most of them are suicide, and it would be very interesting to see. I mean, are you going to not want to kill yourself because there's not a gun in your house? I mean, I have. Yeah, no, I. I mean, again, this is horrible. I'm not trying to any way say yay suicide. (laughs) I hope that's clear, but. No, but I think I think what we're talking about and this is, you know, I think what I tried to stress when Mike and I talked about it last week is. If you're looking at at uh, mass shootings, uh, such as Las Vegas, that's one type of problem. If you're looking at all gun deaths, uh, that's a different type of problem. You have to segregate it out. And and if you look at um, uh, suicide by gun, uh, I think there's a lot of data that shows, look, the availability of the gun makes makes suicide kind of easier, quicker, and and more certain uh, than than other ways. Um, there are, there are less sort of steps where, where you either might change your mind or someone else might intervene. Uh, it, it's pretty much instantaneous. Uh, so yeah, if, if you cut down on gun ownership, could you reduce suicide? I don't, I don't think that's an, an unreasonable, um, uh, conclusion to draw. Uh, but as you point out, there are plenty of other ways to, to kill yourself and, and maybe the, the, the focus ought to be not on uh, how one commits suicide, but on on preventing people from from wanting to commit suicide in the first place. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's that's a that's a again that's a different problem entirely than uh, the Las Vegas shooter. It's a different problem entirely than uh, gang member gang shootings uh, or or you know shootings in in a crime or um, you know the other big big piece of this is you know you're much more likely to be shot by someone you know. Uh, than you are by some random stranger, uh, domestic shootings. And again, that's, that's a different, those are, those are all different problems. And it's easy to say, well, the one commonality is guns, so let's just ban the guns. Um, but you know, first there's the second amendment and and second, I, I don't think that that's going to, that's really going to cure everything. Yeah. And there are, as a matter of fact, I think sometimes in these stories, it always seems like, okay, well, the only reason you're holding on to weapons is some kind of, 
you know, primal instinct that, that could just be solved other ways. But just to give one historic example, during World War II, we were just talking about, you know, global conflicts. One of the reasons that any kind of invasion of North America was ruled out by the Japanese, we have the access to these documents now, was the generals basically said, look, look, if we come in, what are we going to do? Are we going to try to take on everybody who has a gun in, in, on the western seaboard? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the answer was no. And so, I mean, again, I know that's, I recognize that as being an extreme example, but I, I just want to reiterate that there are positives to having weapons as well. You know, it, it's not just always a defense. Uh, and as and yeah. Jeff. I, should, I should just say, again, this is, this is weird because I, I don't like to inject too much of my personal self in this. I just try to say, Hey, here's the, here's the conservative argument. Um, uh, but look, Tom, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I, I, I don't have a gun. Uh, I don't want a gun. I've never felt I, I, I needed one. Uh, and I agree if, if I had one in my house, I, you know, in all likelihood would, would more likely cause me, uh, more harm than, than anyone else. Um, but, but that's not to say that, uh, I want the government to make that. I mean, that's my decision and that's your decision. Uh, and, and what troubles me is when the government steps in and says, they're going to make that decision for someone else who is in different circumstance than me. Um, who, who may very well, uh, need a gun for personal protection or, or for whatever. So, uh, you know, I, I think I, I just want to put that out there. I mean, you can, you can hold both ideas at the same time. You can still say, Hey, I'm anti-gun, uh, but I support the second amendment. I agree. And before we move on to an, another listener mail piece, uh, when we go to our next sponsor, which is Da Vinci. In this age of Skype and Slack and FaceTime, and trust me, I do a lot of this with students, face-to-face meetings still matter. I mean, until we have Star Trek-like holo holo projections, which, by the way, would be awesome, and I'm waiting for that, uh, the face-to-face meeting is still by far the best way to get to know people, iron out issues, and sign deals. But do you really want to meet an important client or an investor in a coffee shop down at Panera? No. That doesn't exactly scream professionalism. The good news is that now you can skip the noisy coffee shop in the expensive hotel conference room you might have been considering and simply book DaVinci Meeting Room. DaVinci provides you instant access to over 5,000 incredibly affordable meeting rooms in well-known office locations in every city. And they make it totally easy. Just search, book, and meet. Your DaVinci meeting room comes fully staffed and equipped with all the latest tech, plus, of course, high-speed internet. Whatever you need. Crap, I got to start over there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, I, I was going to, I don't know if it would be appropriate to make, to put in a, a uh, so if you're going to take a meeting with Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's a good question. We actually might get in trouble with, uh, with audio. Yeah, program. we probably shouldn't. We probably shouldn't. But uh, that would be hilarious. Wouldn't you prefer the De Weinstein? Yeah, if yeah. Harvey had only had Da Vinci, he wouldn't have run into these, these problems. <laughs> well, the other problem though, is this is the uh, midweek and we did, we did Weinstein in the, in the, the one that I'm doing to do right. today. Okay. Okay. So we're going to restart in three, right. two, one. Whether you need a day office or a conference room, a boardroom or a training space, DaVinci has what you need to make your next business meeting a success. Best of all, DaVinci meeting rooms start at just $10 an hour. Entrepreneurs, startups, and Fortune 500 companies 
all enhance their image with professional meeting spaces from DaVinci. Book your space now at davincimeeting.com slash TPG, and the first hour is on them. That's davincimeeting.com slash TPG, and your first hour is free. Terms and conditions apply. For details, see davincimeeting.com slash TPG. Where are you holding your next meeting? So for our next piece of listener mail, Jay, we're going to head over to Wilmer. And Wilmer, he's got lots of questions. Wilmer's got issues with me, doesn't he? He does. He's got some issues. But he gave us the option to kind of sum him up. So Wilmer, I want you to know that I am summing you up. Me, Trey Orndorff. And I'm going to try to do this as best I can So because he wants to really talk to you, Jay. and, and he wants to say, look, I really love that you're pointing all these things in the whole politi- political spectrum. But then he's got some questions and issues with the way you were talking about healthcare, uh, And specifically, he said, look, I know that, uh, that medicine it can and forces into kind of a regular market in some issues, but there's going to be some areas where supply and demand economics simply don't work out. And he said that you, he was talking about those end of life care as kind of being an extreme example. And he tells us that he's an MD and good job, by the way, Wilmer, I, pre- I appreciate MDs. Um, we'll email you back if I need help with my knees later in life. Um, and he says that you talked about the gallbladder surgery specifically as being an elective where economic principles can apply. So he's got yeah. these four big questions. So I'm going to kind yeah, of, I, I, I would first say, I, I don't think I, I said gallbladder surgery was an elective. Oh, good to know. Uh, Please. Yeah. But I, I, you know, what I I meant to say was that it was something that's typically not an emergency surgery. Uh, It's, it's something that you plan ahead and then they say, okay, I think you need to have your gallbladder out. Uh, You know, we'll set you up to come in next week. And I'm sure there are extreme cases where, you know, perhaps uh, emergency surgery might have to to take place. But, but there are are, uh, numerous surgeries where, uh, look, here's something that needs to get done. Uh, we need to get schedule you within the next couple of weeks. Uh, but it's not a matter of, we need to rush you to the ER right now so that there is a period in which you can comparison shop. In other and words, that's, you can have a market basically. Trying, trying to make. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, you're basically kind of answering his first question on that. So let's kind of move to his second, which was what makes a procedure quote unquote elective? And at what point do we cross that distinction, right? So how do we know the difference between, as he says, a nose surgery to fix breathing problems versus, you know, a rhinoplasty? Yeah. I, you know, I, again, I mean, Wilmer's the doctor, so I'll, I'll trust his opinion as to what's elective and what's, what's not. But my point is there are a lot of things that, that are, uh, if not elective, non-emergency. Uh, and that's the, the, the big piece. And right now you have things that are elective where you have sort of a, a free market. Um, and the reason you have that is because it's typically not covered by insurance. So uh, these, these companies don't have, you have more transparency. Um, that's what we were trying to point out in the healthcare uh, discussion uh, a week or so ago was that, you know, one of the reasons why it's difficult for market principles to work is the way healthcare uh, is set up. The end user typically doesn't pay uh, whatever the actual cost is, and they don't really have the the sense uh, or the ability to to go and compare what the actual cost and what the actual result is. Um, so that's that's what I'm I was was trying to get at, and I wasn't trying to say things 
weren't elective or not elective, but but things that are truly elective, like the rhinoplasty, uh, like LASIK, that kind of thing, typically aren't covered by insurance. Um, so there's there's the end user tends to pay more uh, of the actual bill, and as such, they're more sensitive to that, and as such, the providers are more sensitive to the price points uh, for the people who are new, doing that. Now, as far as is, um, you know, there there are other surgeries which are non-elective but non-emergency. Uh, and again, I think if you're going to have a procedure, let's let's say um, uh, childbirth. I mean, look, that's something you're going to go to the hospital for. Um, but when we had our kids, we had the the option and the opportunity to look at a bunch of different hospitals, look at the different birthing rooms. You talk to your doctor. Where do they recommend? Uh, and and there is there is that sort of consumer choice that's sort of built into that decision. And again, that's not an elective. Babies come in one way or the other. Um, uh, but but you, it's not an emergency sense of, of say I'm having a heart attack, just get me to the closest place. Uh, and I think if you, if you take out those, those procedures, those pieces, uh, where you can inject more actual customer choice, I think that's going to lower costs and improve quality across the board, just because that's, that's what happens in markets. Well, then that he kind of has a follow-up on that, Jay. So he says, even if somebody were to shop around and pay for a surgery, kind of like you're mentioning with, uh, with, uh, delivery to a low income, hardworking person, he asks, what's the difference between 4,000 and $5,000? That seems like a big burden, no matter what. And then he goes on to say, in addition, even if this low income worker does shop around, how can you expect each doctor to evaluate the patient? Are they going to order their own tests each time, charge for the consult? This like currently occurs with patients with great insurance, but that's just another added cost burden that's uh, already to an unaffordable burden to a low income, uninsured or underinsured patients. So how do we deal with that? Wow. Well, uh, <laughs> again, this is, um, keep in mind, I'm not actually in charge of healthcare for the country or for anyone. Uh, I, I can offer you sort of the conservative viewpoint on, on the better way to, to handle that. And as I say, in answer to your first question, uh, what's the difference between the 4,000 and the 5,000? Well, it's, it's a thousand bucks. Uh, and that can be significant, uh, to, to a lot of people. Um, I think most people, if you gave them the choice of, Hey, the same quality procedure, you can get it done here for 4,000 here for 5,000. Uh, they would choose the 4,000 or maybe they would say, no, you know what? I really like this facility better. I like this doctor better. And to me, it's worth it for that extra thousand dollars. Uh, to, to, to pay that. And, and again, that's the market working and it's people getting to choose. Um, now as far as, uh, low income folks, uh, look from, from the beginning, the starting point that we had with, with Obamacare, um, Medicaid, you know, Medicaid was, was there. Uh, if you're talking about that gap of people who are above Medicaid, uh, uh, levels uh, and and you know we expanded it so even if not there but the the idea would be that they can move to um, plans that better suit them and those are typically what we've seen higher deductible plans uh, with with bigger catastrophic coverage um, but but still preserving I mean look the the idea with with the type of things you're talking about the four thousand the five thousand dollar those are things that that it can be manageable. 
uh, as opposed to the uh, $100,000, $200,000 big, big hit that's necessarily going to take somebody to bankruptcy uh, or, or take um, you know, a hospital or some other third party to sort of take on that cost. Uh, so look, do I do I have a perfect answer for what does every person, uh, you know, how how do I, how does each individual, uh, how does this guy afford this procedure? I, I I can't tell you that. What I can tell you is, uh, the system that that we've put in place with Obamacare doesn't do that because it, it's it, it's increased the um, uh, the the high cost deductible for those who get plans through the exchanges. Uh, often that coverage is meaningless because it's got a deductible starting at $4,000, So I, I, I guess, you know, again, Omer, if I had the, the answers to all your questions, I would, uh, be in a, a much uh, better position than uh, a guy doing a podcast on weekends. Uh, <laughs> you, know, so, you know, look, I, 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 I get that. And, uh, my point is that that we need to look more to the market, which has done more uh, to bring more care to more people and better quality care historically than uh, than any sort of uh, state uh, diktat saying this is what has to happen, this is not what happens now. And also, preserving patient choice is uh, is something that's that's important. So. Yeah, and I mean, so in kind of his final follow-up that we need to finish up on almost, here. I almost got more questions, don't you? Right? Yeah, well, he basically says that you and uh, Michael had agreed a few weeks ago that universal health care is a good idea, but it can open door to abuse. He basically said, look, isn't it willing to deal with the abuse if we can help all those people in need? Uh, and maybe I can help on help on this one, uh, Jay. And this is tough. I mean, because I had actually taken kind of this position a couple of months ago in the podcast, and we were talking about it. Um, so I think that's why I'm not the one getting the getting the hit, and you are. <laughs> but one of the things to keep in mind about the market is not that anyone is arguing that it is the absolute best way that one could distribute things. It's simply the best way that we can make it work for things to distribute, right? Uh, and so, I mean, a great example would be, say, cell phones. So in the cell phone market, right, when I was in college, very few people had, I mean, some people had cell phones, some people didn't have cell phones. Quickly, people were getting them. And But now today, I mean, I don't have any students that don't have a smartphone, right? Now, at the top end of that, those are really expensive things to do, right? I mean, I don't know if you guys, did you like see the new right. iPhone X, right? It's going to be a grand Right. You know, that's that we're talking about medical procedure prices there. But at the same time, because the iPhone X exists and it kind of has those kinds of technologies, it comes down the pipeline. So if you, you know you can get a Moto X for a couple of hundred bucks that, you know, when I was in college that I thought, well, that's the, that's that's the future. How could you want anything more than that? That's what we're arguing about in markets. It's not that it's perfect, and it doesn't mean that everybody's going to get an iPhone X who wants one. And when you're talking about medicine, that can be, you have questions about how that ought to go. But it does mean that more people than ever will have things, like a couple years from now, everybody will have the same features the iPhone X has. And that is the beauty of a market, even if we can take a look at it and see problems with it you know, in the immediacy. You kind of agree with that, Jay? Yeah, I do. And and look, I, I pointed this out on our, our uh, Saturday show. Um, the idea that 
people are just being thrown out into the streets uh, if you don't have medical care. Uh, that's it's it's just not true. The question comes down to where does the burden for paying for it fall? Uh, and and typically it has been hospitals that have have picked up that burden. Um, is there a better way to uh, to to allocate that? Maybe uh, one one thing that a lot of states have done are things like high risk pools um, uh, that they would subsidize insurance for people who are high risk, have uh, serious um, uh, chronic conditions, uh, and can't get insurance elsewhere. Um, I mean, that's that's one of, of, of many possible solutions. Uh, something else, and this is, I should have mentioned this on Saturday, so I'll mention it again now, but the, the Trump changes the Obama rules, which would allow uh, small businesses to enter into associations, consortiums, uh, to pool their employees uh, across state lines uh, to buy insurance. Again, that that brings more people into the pool, lowers the price, spreads the risk. Uh, those are things that couldn't be done before that can be done. Um, and, and I think would would help uh, uh, spread coverage with with better coverage. So, uh, yeah, is is there always a, a perfect solution? Uh, no, but are we always going to need some sort of safety net? Uh, I think so. And I think we're always going to have that safety net. It's just a question of where the burden of paying for it comes. And, and to Trey's point on technology, I'd, I'd go back to my, um, uh, you know, gallbladder, uh, example and, and Elmer, you could probably back me up on this one is that, look, if you had that kind of surgery 20, 30 years ago, it would have been much more expensive. Uh, and probably riskier than it is now. Uh, it, it's something that, again, years ago would have required multiple day hospital stay, um, uh, you know, risk of infection. And now so many surgeries are done uh, quickly. You spend a day or so in the hospital uh, and then then you're out. Many things that used to require long inpatient stays can now even be done outpatient. Uh, and the results are better. Uh, the price is lower. And there's there's even the the added you know bonus of you know you're less likely to get infections you're less likely to have other complications so I mean that's just an example of of where technology is is taken us so far and it's just going to keep getting better as long as you have uh, a reason to drive it and the reason to drive it is like it or not unfortunately often off often a profit motive so if you can do it better and cheaper uh, people will. Um, but, uh, without a market, uh, oftentimes, um, that sort of drive, uh, to improve isn't present or, uh, is not as, as, uh, prominent as it is with a, a regular market. Yeah. Well, before we wow, go, did we should, I get them all? That I, was we you did. You finally got all of, uh, Wilmer. I hope we've answered your questions, Wilmer. Uh, and before well, we thank head you out, for writing well, seriously, yes. those, are, those are good questions. Yeah. And, and thoughtful, everybody, you know, and we'll talk yeah. more about that, but I just want to mention as we've kind of finish up our two sponsors for this week, uh, midweek show, we have Casper, you know, you're ready for, you need that new bed. I know you do. You need that recovery. Why not go with Casper, the uh, bed that has a 4.8 star review and best of all politics guys, listeners get $50 towards any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash TPG and using promo code TPG. That's casper.com slash TPG promo code TPG terms and conditions apply. Second, we had DaVinci. 
<clears throat> DaVinci. Book your space now at davincimeeting.com slash TPG. And the first hour is on them. That's davincimeeting.com slash TPG. And your first hour is free. Terms and conditions apply. For details, see davincimeeting.com slash TPG. Where are you holding your next meeting? And I think we just generally, Jay, want to thank all of our listeners for taking the time to email us with such thoughtful and interesting questions, engaging us on social media. I know that I'm, I always have a lot of fun um, engaging questions. There's a lot of fun being on the midweek show and, and responding to all of you. Uh, thank you so much. We really appreciate that.